When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to the latest Love Tennis podcast. I'm George Belchor from Metro UK. I'll soon be joined by James Gray and Calvin Betton. I first of all have to send my most sincere congratulations to our fantasy tennis champion, Andrew Philpot, who is also locked in a bet with me all year long, uh, a sort of a four-way Grand Slam super bet in fantasy tennis. Um, but well done to him for winning outright, which I don't think any of us will top for the rest of the year. Um, hello, James and Calvin. You were waxing lyrical about Andy Philpott's triumph, which I was. Is, I mean, it is glorious. Well, I, can I thought it'd be credit. nice to ask my friends to play, and they've absolutely humiliated me. So that was a shame. I've, <laughs> I, I managed to win one of my bets, so that was good after a, a strong second half of the tournament. But uh, yeah, you came on strong in the second week. Yeah, I, I did pick both the winners, which I think you know deserves some credit. Calvin did as well, of course. Indeed. Uh, yeah, well, you kind of hedged a bit because I think you in our in our podcast predictions you you didn't predict Osaka to win. Uh, yeah, that's then, true. But but Halep had not? an injury going into the. No, no, no. He's going to be. All right. <laughs> I yeah. had Halep for the. <laughs> um, but yeah, Halep I'd heard had a problem going into the tournament, so I I changed to the last minute. I think I think we can, we have to reserve the right to do that, don't we? You know, the annual ones are different to the uh, tournament ones, aren't they? Uh, yeah, yeah. To be fair, I mean, I I'm hedged everywhere. I, I didn't back <laughs> anything. Like, like I, I didn't even pick Carlos Alcaraz, who is officially my boy, for our like rising star of the year, because I decided I already had enough like share in him by having backed him for the last twelve months. So anyway, I picked, Sebastian, I picked Sebastian Corder who beat Joe Wilfred Songa today, but we will come on to that. Uh, because it is a good result. Yes, congratulations. Um, well, first of all, thank you to everyone who played fantasy tennis. Uh, 188 of you in total, which is about 170 more than George or I thought we would get involved. Um, it put my spreadsheet skills under a lot of pressure. 
<laughs> conditional formatting took about a week, uh, but it is now all built. And I hope I've got a friend who's very, very good at Excel, much better than me. And hopefully it'll be even more exciting when we get around to the French. Um, but yeah, congratulations to Andy Philport. 48 points in total. I'll, I'll give you his lineup. Djokovic, Titipas, Sinner, Karatsev, Osaka, Serena Williams, Coco Goff, and Kaya Yuvan. Um, uh, yeah, he's, there's not much to say really because they all had, apart from Yannick Sinner, who went out in the second round. First round. They all, well, the first round, sorry, yeah. Yeah, I had him. Yeah, that feels a long, long time ago. Um, truncated Sloth was the early week one leader, but uh, ended up 3.5 points behind. Uh, probably picking Matteo Berrettini hurt him the most, I think. Uh, and Quentin Moyne, uh, who I'm going to say the wrong title and say he works for Lakeep, but he doesn't, does he? It is Lakeep. Oh, yep. Okay, yep. bang on. Uh, well done, uh, Quentin Bieffi. Uh, Djokovic, Tsitsipas, Jordan Thompson he had, who, who went okay. Um, uh, he was, though, one of the... He was a victim of the Svetana Pironkova uh, hype machine. Uh, she lost in the first round, but was a popular qualifier. But yes, well done to everyone. Thank you very much for taking part. Um, I did badly, obviously, but that's that's no surprise to anyone. Uh, 115th, I finished, despite being at least one winner. Yeah, I got oh, that's tough. You, you were you yeah. were top of our tree last week, weren't you? I think I was significantly so. Yeah, uh, just to run down the pod talent, George, you finished on 25 points, uh, which is a respectable score. Um, but it wasn't as good as Calvin on 27 points in 53rd yep. place. Level with the great Johnny Jureko of BBC fame, uh, <laughs> which is high, high praise indeed. Uh, and yes, the less said about my team, the better. I can't help but feel I got unlucky. But, you know, <laughs> them's, them's the great. Them's the great. Uh, yeah, thanks very much to everyone who played uh, and took part and gave me crap on Twitter for the spreadsheet not working properly. Will, but it almost, almost all did. Will, will we have a, a year-long total? that can well, make I it think, a marathon, yeah, not a sprint. It, yeah, I think it would... Yeah, we will certainly... I mean, given there are no prizes, George, the only limit on this is how much time <laughs> I've invested into it. Um, which, given that they've just said they're going to reopen the pubs midway through the year, my time might uh, rapidly disappear. Um, but anyway, yes, we'll do a, I'll do an overall league table for, for the four Grand Slams. But yeah, we'll be back with the French Open, which is actually... And, well, it's not a bad place to start. <laughs> the French Open's very soon, like much sooner than because, of course, we're three weeks later in the season than usual. We're much closer to the French. You know, there's only two months now. I think I'm right in saying until the French Open starts, so we don't have to wait that long. Is that right, George? That sounds 29th of yes. May. Maybe it's nine yeah. weeks. It's late May. Yeah, yeah. Um, which will kind of give us a, a chance to find out whether Naomi Osaka is just a flat track bully because she is the queen of hardcore tennis at the moment, but probably, you know, for the people who are very good on hardcore tennis, has not excelled uh, on clay or on grass. I think she's only made the third round of both the French and Wimbledon in her career. Um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't praise her for what she achieved in Australia. She was in the bottom half of the draw, which we all accepted was significantly tougher. Uh, and so it proved she, she came through, you know, some tricky matches. She beat, um, I can't say her name, Shay, Shay Su Wei. Uh, in the quarterfinal, which not a game she would have expected to play, but a player who has troubled her quite significantly in the past, taken sets off her and pushed her quite hard. Uh, she then, of course, dispatched Serena Williams um, in the semi-final and beat Jem Brady, who, again, a player who's troubled her. She did certainly at the US Open in the semi-finals last year when 
I still think, barring one or two net cords, Brady could have beaten her. Um, but yeah, George, you you picked Osaka in fantasy tennis. You picked Simona Hallett as your prediction because you thought she was injured. Um, sorry, you picked Simona Hallett. I mean, basically because you, before you found out that she was injured, which she wasn't. Yeah, yeah, she wasn't as injured as I thought. She she did fine um, as well, but. No, I mean, Osaka really is the best hardcourter, isn't she, comfortably now? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, the only caveat I'd put in with that is I would put a fit Bianca Andreescu kind of quite close to her. Um, mm. But obviously that, she wasn't there in this tournament. Well, wasn't fully fit, that is. Um, yeah, look, I mean, Osaka, there's a lot of interesting questions about where she goes from here. I think, you know, the French Open and Wimbledon are the next stage to her greatness, if you like. I mean, it's quite unbelievable. She's one slam away from Sharapova already, for example. Um, wow. I think that that does kind of put in, when you consider Sharapova's been like one of the biggest names, won every single Grand Slam title. Okay, she only won five. It feels like she probably mm. won more. But, you know, Osaka, Venus is on about seven or something, so she can kind of get up to her as well. I reckon. I mean, I, I think she'll get double digits. I have to say, Osaka. Mm. Do you, do you um, yeah, I, well, it's, it's really interesting to hear her talk about it. You don't often hear tennis players talking about so many slams so early in their career. You know, she, she when she said it on Eurosport, she was a three-time Grand Slam champion. And she said, well, first of all, I want five, and, and then we can think about 10, and then 15. I mean, in terms of ambition, that, that's crazy. I think we all think she's good enough to get somewhere close to that. But it's a pretty crazy way for someone to talk with such kind of effortless confidence. Um, Calvin, I know you picked her to win the tournament, so you, you, you're allowed to be smug briefly. Um, but then you probably have to provide some insight. Uh, if she wants to win 15 Grand Slams, she's going to have to win some of them not on hard, isn't she? Yeah, she absolutely is. Um, I'm not sure that that's going to be quite the problem that some people think it is. I think the reason why she may have struggled previously on clay and grass, or whether one of the reasons why she may have struggled is I just think she was young, there was a lack of experience, but I think there's been quite a big change in the last 12 months. She's become more consistent all round. She was always, when she won that first US Open, she was always a bit up and down, even in the sort of smaller tournaments, she'd lose a couple of first rounds, that kind of thing. I'm not sure that the the surface plays as much of a part as basically her experience and maturity. And I think there's definitely a more serious player that we're looking at now, a more focused player and that type of thing. So I, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see her start winning on, on the other surfaces. Is It's is interesting to me that she said she thought she'd struggle more to win at Wimbledon than the French. I think she said she felt more comfortable on clay. I, I, yeah, I mean, I'm not I, I sure. Think... Sorry, George, I'm, I'm not sure how much grass she'll have played on. That's that, the only thing. That's um, what I was going to say. Yeah, exactly. I think you know, the grass is just quite limited time, isn't it? Generally, and I, I know a yeah. lot of the Americans don't necessarily get on it as much. Over it's there. also yeah. as well if if you, it, it's quite strange in that the grass in Britain is different from the grass in the states. The grass courts in the states, and I know they've now got one in. I think is the women's got one in Turkey or somewhere like that, or I know there's one in Mallorca as well, isn't there, or somewhere? Berlin, like that. there's one that's yeah. gone to Berlin. I feel, recently. I feel like just about every be. tennis tournament is in Turkey at the moment. I, I just honestly, <laughs> Antalya is some sort of hotbed of tennis. Antalya has one every week, yeah. 
Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so and I, say, I guess this year might be a bit different. I've, I've, I've looked a little bit at the schedule, but is there one less tournament for the women or have they kept them the same um, grass courts going into Wimbledon? Well, there's no Surbiton this year. Yeah. Uh, but I think... I think it's the same number, isn't it? So the, the big ones, yeah, the ones Osaka would be okay. involved in, as far as I'm aware, are the, are the same. I, I don't know if yeah. they, I can't, I can't remember the full schedule. I've only been looking at the British one this week, but I, I, I imagine think, yeah. more players would lean to come to Britain. Yeah, I, I think it's going back to that. I, I'm interested to see how she does on the clay uh, at the French because I think that there's definitely been. I've definitely noticed a change. You know, it was always sort of a bit of a sort of carefree, um, sort of giggling player two years ago but this this year she looked to have some real steel about her and she meant business I mean she she completely dispatched of Serena Williams and then in the mm. final as well it was ruthless um, and I'd be surprised if a player of that quality suddenly goes off with on, on depending on surface I don't, the really interesting thing I find about her and Brady kind of pulled this out is just how big and how well she executes big shots in big moments yeah. you know i don't, I don't yeah. think she actually played okay she played well against brady well enough to win but it was every time she was in a minor moment of trouble or you know needing a big winner on break point she just seemed to come up with it i, I think she's just i don't know i think mentally she's just streets ahead of everyone in that department at the minute yeah, she also mm. looks. I mean, the, the 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 power that she's hitting. She looks to be playing on a different playing field. You get you get some players like Brady can hit big balls, but you, it looks like you know she has a limit to how many, and she needs a bit of time to hit them. Osaka's just like she's she's playing with a machine gun when the others are playing with hand pistols. It it, it was brutal, <laughs> I thought, towards the end of it. She's yeah, bringing, she, basically she... bringing a tank to a knife fight. It, it actually reminded me, and I, I, there were a number of times during the tournament tournament that it, she reminded me of Serena Williams. You know, even yeah. when she was talking about her own match against Serena and she was saying how scared she was of hitting soft balls because she's grown up watching Serena absolutely maul people when they just lob in a second serve. And then in the final, you kind of saw that with Brady. You know, she missed a couple of second serves when it was clear that she was going for it because she knew if she didn't, it was going to come back with interest. And, I just thought, you know, the one thing I asked Osaka after the final, you know, what was the thing that you were really focusing on other than just winning that match? And she said, I've worked on return of serves for six months. It's the biggest part of my game that's improved. And, you know, I think I would be tended to agree. We, we talked in the WhatsApp group how different returning a serve is, Calvin. You know, it, it's not a ground stroke, is it? And she looks like she understands that. Yeah, it's different. I think there's a mistake that a lot of people make is that they think that, that the return is exactly the same as a ground stroke, and it's not. It's basically, it's more complicated than this, but you've got to think about it. It's the second half of a ground stroke. There's no real mm. backswing, and it's almost like a catch-and-throw motion, like when you, as if you're catching a rugby ball and then throwing it back immediately. That's what a return mm. is. So it, it, it's a shot that it's probably the, mo the, the most under-practiced shot in tennis as well um, is um, is the return if anyone's wondering what the most over practice shot in tennis is it's probably smashing that um, <laughs> <laughs> everyone practices smashes about six times before every match and then in practice as well and you normally hit a smash maybe twice in a match um, 
Djokovic has got his priorities right then, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Djokovic. It always, always fascinates me, especially, not so much anymore, but up until about 10 years ago when you'd see, particularly the on the on the WTA, the girls would always warm their smashes up and hit sort of seven or eight smashes. And then whenever a, a lob went up, they'd just, they'd never smash it. They'd always drive volley it. <laughs> Being alive, why, why don't you warm up your drive volleys? Like, you're, you're definitely not going to smash it. But uh, to be fair, the girls have got really good at smashing in the last 10 years. So. Uh, it's funny that never practicing a return, it's something when I first started covering tennis, I found really peculiar was that, you know, in, in the warm up before a match, and I know it's not representative of training or practice or anything, that a player would hit every shot except return of serve. Yeah. Because they would be serving while the other one was serving. And of course, there's a few. Is it Conta does it? She returns a few serves. And I think Serena does it as well. She tries to, or certainly used to. So there are players who do it. But I, I also think it's a hugely alpha move to like when, you're, when your opponent's trying to warm up their serve and yeah. you're standing there smashing them back, especially if you can catch a few. Uh, I think it's a really a really good move, and yeah, maybe maybe it is under practice. It's 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 also like when they do on the occasion when they do practice it, it's always a bit sort of vague, and there's no. If you think about how people practice serve, they stick targets down and they're aiming for something and that kind of thing. Returns just tends to be, oh, I'll just have a few swings uh, mm. and let's see what happens, and it, it's kind of non-specific, and yeah, it especially seems it's quite a specialist shot. It's a strange it's a strange one that one. Well, I'm always kind of confused as to why tennis, certainly in training, isn't as specialised. I know, you know, I wrote something this week with a friend of yours, Calvin Craig Beale, who's a coach and a very good, a very good and interesting one, and he's a good talker. But we kind of chatted about how there is no, there is not a lot of specialist coaching going around. There is, there probably are a few people who call themselves serve specialists, but there's no like serve consultant or you know, coaches who are really, really specific and kind of micro, micro interested, I suppose. It, it kind of surprises me, although maybe you just think tennis isn't that complicated. Um, yeah, it's not complicated. I think there are people who claim to do that kind of thing. I'm always a bit sceptical of it. Um, I wonder why they'd... Good coaches tend to be good coaches on, on most things. Now, you would get at a different age, like basically sort of, if I could just use myself as an example, that I not really coached beginners in a few years. I, I started off coaching beginners when I first started coaching, but I've not coached beginner players in a good few, probably about 10 years now. So I've not sort of built a serve from sort of the ground up in about 10 years. So you, you maybe lose that kind of thing. And maybe sort of for that, kind, if you want, if you're wanting sort of specific beginner serve type instructions, that might be a different route to go. But I think that a lot of the time with serves, it's just kind of like making little tweaks and that kind of thing. So I think that that kind of may be what you get a lot of, if that makes sense. The other thing I was just going to say, I mean, I think if you think about specialists and stuff, like players are quite reluctant to be forking out on too many coaches. You know what I mean? Like you, you mm. don't want, you know, if, whatever these specialists would be charging. Like it, it's a lot of money. It's only one person footing the bill. So while like, okay, Novak can quite often like bring someone new onto his team, you know, it, it's probably going to run up a big expense if you start adding Goran Izovic to the world number 100 to make it like that common. It's also like, I, I think of stuff like that with, with 
I find it strange, like, I'll get Goran Ivanovic in to, to sort of make me serve like him. I don't think it's always that simple. You know, it's like, you know, is, is a concert pianist the best person to teach someone how to play piano or is a piano teacher a better person to do it? Um, but also, I think what was interesting a few years ago, sort of before his injury was, I don't know whether you guys remember, but Murray was sort of had a couple of concerns about a couple of specific areas of his game. When he, I think it was when he was Lendl or maybe Benresmo at the time, and he he came back to specifically called up a couple of uh, junior coaches in Britain to to help him with a couple of sort of specific technical areas because he made the point that the sort of tour coaches don't do much technical work, and so he went and got a couple of guys who he knew were good junior coaches, uh, and he did a few. He did about a week with them. Hmm, that's interesting. But I suppose as as George mentions, you know. He's got the kind of financial security and flexibility to to be able to do that, but it's just it just I find it really interesting that there isn't isn't more specialisation. Um, we've kind of gone off topic because I know we wanted to talk about Jennifer Brady as well, and I certainly did um, because I did a big feature on her before the tournament because I had a hunch that she might go deep. Of course, I didn't back that hunch in fantasy tennis, but you know, nevertheless, <laughs> uh, it paid off. So, does it really way. count? Um, That's the question. Well, does it? Does it? The newspaper inches that I filled with my interview with Michael Gezerer certainly count. Um, he is the, the German coach. He used to work with Julia Gorges. Gurges? Gurges? I've never been able to say her name. But he used to work with her and then he joined up with Jen Brady in, in 2019 and pretty much took her from 70 in the world to now number 13, I think she is today. Um, after a terrific run to the final, admittedly, the draw opened up. I, I don't think anyone would be shy about saying that, but you can only beat what's in front of you. And she did that right up until the final, um, not without some scares. She lost the first set to Jessica Pegula. Um, she dropped a set in the semi-final against Carolina Makova. Um, and I think she dropped one other set, but I can't see it. No, just those. So, you know, she, she, she beat two seeded players. I suppose you could say it was a relatively easy draw, but... She got to the final. She's a US Open semi-finalist from last year. Um, I remember saying to Michael, I said, you know, what are your targets and things? And he said, oh, you know, I don't really go in for rankings targets. I just want to make a better player. But I guess it's good and we'd like to keep it that way that we don't have to play qualifiers for WTA events this year. And I think we can be fairly sure that she's not going to be playing many WTA qualifiers uh, this year now that she's just outside the top 10. Um George, I think when, when we chatted just sort of privately and the name Jen Brady came up and you sort of did your, oh, yes, interesting face, um, as though if a draw opened up, she could take advantage of it. And that's kind of exactly what happened, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Brady is quite quietly confident in herself. And she said as much after the match that she feels she's one of the best players in the world. And I think on a hard court, she definitely is. I mean, I, I would put her in the top top eight hardcore players at the moment, I think. Um, and, and, you know, she's shown that in her results, semi-finals and finals. And of course, as you say, yeah, there was perhaps a little bit of luck with the draw that came up, but, you know, who was in her section, like Contra and Azarenka, I think, are probably the seeds mm. who went out there. I'd still give her a decent shot against both of them. I still think they're kind of 50-50 matches, maybe, you know, given Contra's form at the minute, probably, 70-30 really to Brady so um, yeah. yeah she's good and she says she believes she can win Grand Slams whether she can or not it's going to be hard with Osaka kicking around let's put it that way um, and I think Andrescu is yeah. a better hardcore player when she's fit as I've said um, you know 
people like Azarenka are still around. Even would Brady beat Serena? I don't know. But she, if she puts herself in these positions, she's always going to have a chance. Hmm. Calvin, I, I don't know what you made of her performance in the final. She, she's got quite a obvious weakness, I suppose, which is on the backhand side. And probably while that's still as it is, and I think it's, I think it's improved from where it was, say, in the US Open. But while she's got that major weakness, you, you'd think that most top players will be able to zero in on it. Yeah, for sure. And I also think in the final, it, it was kind of a bit difficult for her because it's the most difficult match when you play somebody who plays quite similar to you, but they're just better than you in, in even if it's <laughs> 2% better than you in every single shot. It's difficult to see where the way through is. And I think there was a feeling of that. Um, and it wasn't much difference. And there will be times when Osaka and Brady play where Osaka's a little bit off her game and Brady can take advantage. But I think the other days, if, if Osaka's playing if Osaka's playing to par level, I think that Brady's always going to have to play well better than par to get a, any sort of result against her. And I think that was mainly what the problem was there. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose it's good to have an American at a high level in the game as well. I, I know it, it seems really kind of facile, but, you know, America's a really big market for for any sport, particularly tennis. And Serena Williams, I mean, and we can discuss this in a moment. So I don't know how many how many years Serena Williams has left, but Naomi Osaka is a superstar who captures a huge market. And the more Americans there are around, the better. Um, on that, by the way, uh, the figures for Osaka versus Serena Williams um, on ESPN, it peaked at 1.6 million, uh, which doesn't sound like a huge amount. Um, but when you consider that the most watched Australian Open match of any kind in the US was previously 1.09 million, and that was a Nadal versus Federer final, um, that gives you an idea of, of how big those numbers are. Um, it's, it's pretty impressive, really. And I kind of go on. Uh, I might be I might be wrong, but I think those figures were since 2017, possibly or 2015. So I'm not sure there hasn't been bigger in the past, unless I've misread something. But I, I've. Still, anyway, the point stands. I mean, certainly within the last six or seven years, it was. I big. think. Um, I think the reason the reason it's slightly misleading is because the big big matches in the Australian Open are generally Aussie Open night sessions and are therefore on in the middle of you know, the small hours in America, like three a.m. Whereas obviously Osaka Serena was in the afternoon in Australia, yeah. but so it was in prime time in the U.S. Um, so I, I think it is all time uh, Australian oh, really? Open. I must have misread that. Well, I might be wrong. We'll agree. I don't know, but I just thought I'd read it wrong. Point is, Naomi Osaka is a big fucking deal, and we can't get away from that. Yeah. She is. And she's... Go on. I was just going to say, well, you know, we've said it before, haven't we? I mean, she's just got the branding right around her as well now. She's got massive commercial deals. She's only going to get bigger and bigger and I think I wouldn't necessarily say she's just thinking about how much money she can make, but if she dominates on the court on top of that side of things, she's going to be absolutely humongous in the world of sport. And she already is big, but I mean, the sky is the absolute limit for her. And she's also got that very genuine quality that that people really relate to. Um, I think my favorite moment of finals weekend was her turning at the beginning of her winner's speech uh, to kind of address Brady and saying, Oh, (laughs) You go by Jennifer or Jenny, and and Brady kind of says, "Oh, Jenny," and she goes, "Congratulations, Jennifer." 
<laughs> obviously zero malice meant by it and she just misheard her which is completely understandable I actually thought I, I think she's a Jen anyway is she not Jen I thought I, that, that when she said it <laughs> yeah, I'm um, sure she is neither Jennifer or Jenny <laughs> uh, but it was an endearing moment um, we wanted to talk about Serena Williams as well who Osaka of course knocked out in the semi-final and blew her away Surprised me, to be fair, because I thought Serena had looked so good against Sabalenka and against Halep. Um, you know, physically in particular, her movement against Sabalenka. I haven't seen Serena Williams move like that in a long time. So I really thought she'd give Osaka a, a run and, and she just didn't. Um, George, she, she walked out of her press conference in tears, Serena. She said, I'm done. She meant with the press conference, not with her career. <laughs> But um, I know that you were one of those who read that we might be taking those particular words a bit more seriously quite soon. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm a bit on the fence about what it means, but I, I think Chelsea actually for the, reasons, for the reasons you've just said, this was like a pretty significant loss for Serena. I think this was by far the best I've seen her turn up in the early weeks of a slam. And she played good opposition. And we said last week, to win this slam, she would have to come through serious, serious opposition to win it. It could be one of her best slam wins in terms of opponent's face. But, you know, I just think the reality hit her that she was at a high level this tournament and she she's not as good as Osaka. And that, that that's the bottom line at the minute. Is she's, she's nowhere near as good as Osaka. It's not even close now. And she wasn't close to Andrescu when she played her in the final. She wasn't close to Hallett when she played her in the final. She wasn't close to Kerber when she lost to her in the final. And this wasn't a final, but it's another sign that when other players in these later stages of tournaments are on it, they're too good for her. And I, I think from Serena's side, knowing she'd gone into this at probably the best she could be, really, I think, from what I saw when you consider she's 39, I just don't. I, I, I've said this a few times, but I, I can't see her actually winning one. Apart from now, I've got a slight inkling she could win Wimbledon based on just other other players not being quite ready to do it on grass. But you know that that's the only slam I can see her winning now. Do you buy just briefly anything of the shoulder injury that she said she had before the tournament, or is that just a red herring? Well, she had an Achilles injury as well, didn't she? I mean, she's always got something wrong with her. They've all got she, things I mean, wrong with them, don't she's they? Been... Well, she's been playing professional tennis since 1997. I think we do, yeah, you know. <laughs> I, I, look, I, I watched her play and she looked pretty fine to me. You know, Novak's got a two and a half centimetre ab tear apparently as well. I mean, like, I, I, I don't know what the hell they're all doing. It's unbelievable the painkillers they've got. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Calvin, I think you're probably on the same boat as George with Serena that she just doesn't have the physicality to win a slam. Yeah, I think this this may make a decision for her, and I don't know uh, how much longer she'll play for, but I think what those older players tend to do is when they lose those kind of matches, they kind of justify to themselves that they weren't playing quite as well, and if they were bringing their best, they're still the best. And I think Federer, we find Federer in that position a lot, uh, in that the matches he loses, he tends to... I don't know the way to put it. He tends to think that maybe he just didn't execute something that he can but it's getting to the stage now, as George has pointed out, where Serena is getting beat badly. And, and Federer, I think even... Are they the same age? Serena yeah. and Federer? About yeah. a month apart. She's a yeah. month younger, I think. 
Yeah, Federer's like he doesn't take any bad defeats, does he? Whereas whereas Serena now, as as George says, she's getting sort of badly beat up in a lot of these ones, and I wonder how much longer she'll want to do that because um, she's not going to get any better at tennis now. That that's not mm-hmm. going to happen. Um, it's going to as, as George says, she might win another one, but you kind of get the feeling if she wins Wimbledon, it would mean the others have all been knocked out, and she gets a a pretty sort of a big underdog in the final or something like that, which can happen in the women's yeah. game. But Absolutely. Um, I, I don't see it. I don't see who she's going to beat in the top 10 anymore um, in a big match. Yeah, I, I kinda, I'm kind of sitting on the same boat. I think the caveat is that, you know, she did look phenomenal in two of those matches, you know, in a, in a fourth round and a quarter final. And usually you'd say if you beat, Sabalenka, who's what, number seven in the world and the form player, and Simona Halep, you would expect to be in a final. And now Serena's not going to get, because she's going to be like number 10 seed and things, she's always going to have to potentially do that. But you would think winning those two matches, the way the women's game is, you would have a decent shot at being being in a final. Yeah, I don't yeah, also caveat it. Sorry, George, go on. No, I was just going to say, I mean, like, if you look at this tournament compared to the French Open, if Serena had turned up to the French Open after you had this one, she'd probably have won that. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. everyone just dropped out. I know she's not the best on clay, but that that is that is the big caveat with all of this. But I think on a hard court where you'd say she, you'd expect her to have a way better chance than the French, like Osaka is just too dominant now. I just don't see her letting her foot off the gas. So. Yeah, I think grass is really her best option now. I'd, I'd also caveat though by saying that she has got to the semis of a slam, and you know we don't we don't want to make out that she's she's not yep. of, of the level. And if you make the semis of a slam, players go through whole careers without making the semis of slams. And my concern is how much how much longer she'll want to sort of accept not winning slams and not being able to beat her competitor, biggest competitors in the big matches. And, and don't forget, go on, George. I was just saying, don't forget as well. I mean, you can tell her priorities have changed quite massively with her child and stuff. I mean, like as Calvin says, I mean, if if she's not feeling like she can beat her top opposition and it's not going that well for her in these big matches, I, I think there will be a big question of motivation. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if she chucked in the towel after the U.S. Open. To be honest, I may be way off, but. It, particularly just given the restrictions and stuff. If they can get fans there and she can have a good buy there, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if that's when she called it a day, to be honest. It'd be pretty insane, wouldn't it, if we lost, you know, Murray, Federer and Serena in the same year. And actually, I don't think it's completely impossible that those three players um, could all retire in, in this year, to be honest. But we'll come on to Andy Murray a little bit later. Um, and he's been playing in Montpellier tomorrow against Igor Garasimov, but... Uh, we will talk. He's also been talking to the press today, so we'll discuss those. Um, but it would be remiss not to discuss Novak Djokovic's ninth, yes, ninth Australian Open title um, in his ninth final. He's nine and zero in Australian Open finals. It, it's an absolutely staggering record. It's the he's the second best player at a single Grand Slam of all time, um, behind Nadal at the French, of course. It never really looked in doubt. There was a brief moment in the first set when Medvedev looked like he could go with him but it never felt like he was going to beat him George did it no not really I, I mean I thought the first three games from Novak were absolutely phenomenal I mean it was just like 
the guy couldn't miss. It was like when he played Rafa two years ago in the 2019 Australian Open, and you know everyone's starting to build it up. I think that that is obviously the disappointment, isn't it? That we all thought Medvedev was going to be out there to go and really tackle him, and Medvedev's normally a pretty good player at trying different things and working it out, but he he just looked how other players have looked playing Medvedev recently. Just he was his brain was broken, and I think he said mm. as much afterwards that. You know, I didn't play well or as well as I could do, but he was making me play really badly. And even if I had played well, I'm not sure I'd have won this. You said he took time away from me. It was really interesting. He, he said I had lots of ideas, but, you know, the match only lasted half an hour. And it lasted nearly two hours, but he said it felt like it just clipped by. And to be fair, it, it did have that quality where... It was quite even, and then all of a sudden he's serving at 5-6 and he gets broken, and then the match just goes. I mean, you know, he lost, what, 12 of the next 14 games, and it, it just killed him, George. I, I thought Novak's returning was absolutely phenomenal. Like, if you look at Medvedev's matches in this tournament and how well he was serving and how many free points he was getting on serve, I mean, I, I don't have the stats in front of me, but there the can't have been that many free points Medvedev was getting. So many of those returns mm. were dropping back at his feet deep. And he, and he did just quite well generally like tangling Medvedev up a bit. I think players have too much of a tendency to try and push Medvedev really far wide when actually if you wrap him up in the middle of the court in these kind of awkward, he's got such long rangy limbs, it's actually a bit more awkward for him to kind of run round balls in the middle than when he because he's so good on the stretch at hooking it back in I, I think that's maybe an underused strategy against him that I thought Novak used pretty well I think Calvin we were all in agreement on the WhatsApp group that it was a 50-50 match and we couldn't necessarily pick a winner you surprised by how quickly it went away from the Russian yeah big time I think it was a combination of him playing pretty average and Djokovic playing really well uh, also a couple of key moments at the, the first set when he lost it he he was he, I think he had half a sniff in Djokovic's service game um, was it five all or did, did Medvedev serve first or Djokovic serve first no Medvedev uh, Djokovic, uh, served, Med- first, Djokovic served first yeah. yeah yeah and I think he had a sort of half a sniff didn't take it and then they got into his service game and he went love 40 down then played two mm-hmm. really good points to get it back to 30-40 and then dumped a forehand in the net to lose the set. And and I sort of think, it, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, it's all hearsay, but I wonder what, what would have happened if he hadn't have lost that point. Because at that stage, I actually think he was the better player in the first set overall. Jo- Djokovic started better, but Medvedev was, towards the end, was looking a lot better. Um, what I think Medvedev's issue is, and I said this to, I don't know whether I said it in our WhatsApp group as well, but I just texted another couple of mates during the match, is that he, he it's, I think he's great, Medvedev. I think he'll win slams, and I think he's comfortably now in the top four best players in the world, if not the best three at the minute. But he very quickly looks limited in what he can do when things aren't going his way. And I think yesterday, as it went on, <clears throat> it became more of an issue of Djokovic was going to have to start playing a lot worse. There was nothing that Medvedev could actually do himself to change things in that his game is basically, he serves big and he doesn't miss and he keeps a length. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that just didn't seem to be bothering Tori, didn't seem to be uh, bothering Djokovic one bit. Yeah, it's always so funny. I I find it really hard to criticise people who are losing to Novak in 
on yeah. that court in Australia because like so many people have gone into those matches and I've been like, oh, this is going to be close, you know. Like, I, di- I didn't think Nadal was going to beat him two years ago, actually. But, you know, that was the narrative. Oh, Nadal's got this new serve. He's playing really well. He's swatted everything aside. And then the guy couldn't, just couldn't handle him. I mean, Novak does have this unbelievable ability to just step it up on this court. Never lost beyond the semifinals. Just looks ridiculously comfortable on Rod Laver, doesn't he? Mm, it, it's, I mean, it, it is that thing of being beaten before you walk out, isn't it? It's the idea that you're going into the court of the king, and you know you, you don't. You're not supposed to win. You're not supposed to do it. I don't know that Medvedev is, you know, necessarily mentally weak, but I don't think he's a mental monster either. I don't think he's necessarily got the biggest mindset in the world. You know, I don't think of him like someone like Team, who I think is quite resilient. Um, but you know, you need that to to make a difference against these guys, don't you? What, what he tends to be quite good at Medvedev is he can look like he's going nuts and he can get very angry, but it doesn't affect his tennis. Yesterday, I didn't think that mm. applied. He, he started getting mad and you can see it affected his tennis. He started missing a lot more and he just never felt comfortable. Now, you can say that that's probably the situation, but he's been in a slam final before and he was in a worse situation than... Well, he was in a similar situation, wasn't he, when he played Nadal. Nadal won the first two sets pretty comfortably against him and he didn't look anything like. Yeah. So... I think he was. He, he, you get the impression with him, he's always on the edge, though. He's always on a knife edge. Um, and it just it, it went the wrong way yesterday. It'd be interesting to mm. see what happens when he gets his next final, because that was quite a meltdown, um, what he had yesterday. Yeah, I, I think the progress, you know, I, I asked him afterwards what he had learned from that Nadal final and tried to implement, and he kind of sort of ignored me and said, well, they're two completely different matches. You know, he's a lefty and he's Nadal. And I was like, I'm not really talking about their opponent here. I'm talking about you. Like, that. that's what I want to know is what progress you've made and, like, what you can take away. Because he, he said a lot. He said, I'm grateful for the experience of having done this twice now. And I don't know what he's learned from that first Grand Slam final that he then applied to the second Grand Slam final. Maybe, maybe it's that different playing Nadal from playing Djokovic, but I don't know. But... There's definitely a problem. Okay, these guys are some of the best players of all time, but you still have to walk out and do something, give them a bloody lip at some point. Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting. Obviously, this is a completely impossible scenario, but it'd be interesting to see the two finals the other way around as well, like if, if the Djokovic one came first. Because I, th- I think the challenge of facing Nadal on a hard court these days is, is nowhere near what it is facing Novak. Like, mm-hmm. I think it would have been interesting to see if Medvedev had had one final under his belt before that final with Nadal because he came so close in that and he kind of looked like he'd figured him out and got comfortable there. But I, I, I don't know. I, I, I do feel a bit sorry for Medvedev because I think people are going to look at him now and think, oh, maybe he's not mentally quite there to do this. And I, OK, he did lose his way a bit, but I do think there is something to be said for just, you know, facing Nadal at the French, facing Novak in Australia... These guys are the best ever at these tournaments, and they win there all the time for a reason. And you know, Medvedev was on an incredible run, and we can't forget that as well. That shouldn't be kind of undone just by this. Um, But all he'll have learnt from this is I've got a long way to go to be able to beat these very best guys on their best courts. And what it means is that we still only have one man who, born after September 1988 
who has won a Grand Slam tennis tournament. That that date, by the way, is Juan Martín del Potro's date of birth, um, who is the next one along. But yeah, Dominic Team is the only guy born in the 1990s to have won a Grand Slam. I appreciate that we're talking about three of the greatest players of all time in, in Djokovic, Nadal and Federer. But Calvin, I know you were talking about this on Twitter. It, it is a concern for the game because we've got these four or five guys just below who are very good and very interesting and have great personalities. But if they're not winning Grand Slams, they're worth nothing to the casual sports fan. Yeah, for tennis to sort of maintain any interest, you need stars. You need stars in the game. Um, and it's obviously got three, four stars. It's had three or four stars for the last 10 or 15 years. Um, it's hard to sort of develop stars if they're not winning the big tournaments and they're not at the minute. And that's where I find quite concerning that um, are people going to stop watching when when those those guys are not around? Federer, Djokovic, N- Nadal, Murray. Um, and I mm. guess I'd even have sort of, I guess in this country, I'm not, do people really count Djokovic as a star? Do people tune in to watch Djokovic who are the casual fan? They tune in to watch Federer. They tune in to watch Murray, I think, to a degree. Even the Dal's a bit box office, but that's not to say, I mean, I think Djokovic is better than any of them, really. But it's, it's sort of becoming a bit of a problem. I know that mm. I was talking to my dad about, and my dad's been a lifelong tennis fan, um, and he doesn't care for any of the new guys. He doesn't know who they are, where they're from, or anything. Uh, and part mm. of that because tennis isn't on TV anymore. Um, yeah. So he doesn't he doesn't get that sort of watching every tournament um, at night. So he's not really been seen much in the last two years. But you would still think if there was a star around who'd won four slams by now, he'd know who they were. But he doesn't know who Sitsipas is. He doesn't know who Zverev is. Hmm. For me, Sitsipas is the one. I mean, I think when I look at him... Because he's because he's a because he's amazing looking. I mean, he's just like honestly. I think the the bandana does him down because once he when he comes into press and he's like you know he's dried his hair and he takes the bandana off. I mean, he looks absolutely sensational. Um, but also because he's all right. like <laughs> all right. I've got a man crush on Steph. Let's just admit add it, it. Add it to the list. With who was the other guy who you were madly in love with? Um, did the, obviously. No. The, the guy in the documentary that we watched. Oh, oh the Vias. Vias. Yeah. Vias. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Absolute killer. Um, but yeah, you know, Tsitsipas, he's got the looks. He's interesting. Yeah. He Okay, he makes terrible music, but it's something. And he plays interesting tennis. You know, he's not just a baseline grinder. Um, he seems to have the mentality. And let's face it, his win against Rafa Nadal was probably the best, tournament, best match of the tournament, bar maybe Kyrgios' team. I think that that is part of the frustration for me, though, that there's a few guys who are on the, right on the cusp. of They could be superstars. There's there's Sitsipas, like you say, great look. Even the way he plays is fantastic. I love watching him play. Zverev's another one for all his faults. You know, he looks great. You can't deny that. The guy looks like a model. Um, <laughs> Shap- Except when Shap- he wears that dreadful well, shirt. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, No excuse for that under any circumstance. Um, <laughs> you know, sort of Felix, great look again. Shapovalov, I think he's got a great look. Um, he's a bit different. Also makes terrible music. Sinner's coming through. Looks a bit different, but his game style will. Yeah, looks in. a bit different. Yeah, he, he looks like that fifth former who's got shorts too big for him. He's got moved up to the first level because he's the Shermanator. 
<laughs> the Sherman <laughs> Act. Um, but you know, so there's these guys who are they're right there on the cusp, and if they could, if one of them could win something, and then Medvedev's a bit different because Medvedev maybe hasn't got the look, but he's he's just nuts, and he has the sort of <laughs> he's really ready to sort of be the villain of the the whole piece. And yeah. I just wish I just looking for one of them to step up because I think when one of them steps up, there'll be we'll see a bit of a windfall. Mm. It's basically what we've got is in the men's game we've got all the personality and they're not winning grand slams and yeah. the women's game they're all winning grand slams but there isn't quite yeah. you know aside, aside there isn't that personality superstar sorry George I cut across no I was just going to say I mean I'd be interested to get Calvin's thoughts generally on how he thinks the kind of ages will look in. 20 years time for example of like tennis players that are winning their first slams and is this just purely the big three being too um, good or is there a shift do we think as well that might it, see sl- more slam winners at 27-8 for a first it's the, one it's the first era in my lifetime where there's not been someone very young regularly winning slams because you had or regularly competing for them you had Borg uh, I mean I'm 42 you had Borg, who'd won a bit before I was born. Then McEnroe comes along when I think he was 18. He starts winning, and then sort of 20, 21, he's, he's, he's dominating the game. And then you had Boris, who's the ultimate the ultimate one, comes through. And then after that, a little bit after that, Agassi made a final when he was 18, I think, at the US Open. Samfra starts winning regularly at 21. And then you had sort of a couple of the Spanish guys came through. Moyer, I think, wins one. Safin wins one young. Hewitt wins one really young, and then Federer starts. Federer wasn't that young, I think. Was he 23 20. when he won his first? 21? 21, I think. 21, I think. Right, and then, of course, Nadal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and then Murray and Murray and Djokovic were beating those guys when they were younger, coming through younger. So, this is the first time in 40 years, really, that we've not had anyone winning slams um, under that age. So, it, it's difficult to tell. We're in sort of uncharted times, really. I guess Murray, was he 25 when he actually got over the line in the end? And then Vavrinka was 27. So yeah. I mean, you could argue yeah. the shifts came a little bit Yeah, I'd say, I'd say Vavrinka was a bit different, but Murray, Murray was beating those guys regularly when he was, maybe not when he was 18, 19, but he was regularly competing. He was making finals, that kind of thing. It just felt a bit felt a bit different and those guys were more in their peak as well Federer, Nadal yeah. um, Djokovic were, were absolutely in their peak when that was around so it's a scary now. it's a scary thought Djokovic isn't his, in his peak having watched him this weekend yeah. isn't it yeah <laughs> unbelievable <laughs> I mean is it a physical thing I wonder because tennis increasingly is an endurance game right um, courts are slower uh, points tend to be longer matches tend to be longer and endurance athletes peak in their 30s. You know, marathon runners tend to peak in around 35, 36, maybe in 37. And, you know, marathon running is three hours and under, yeah. obviously. And, and tennis matches are two, three hours. So you kind of would almost, OK, there's more explosion in tennis, obviously, and there's a few other bits and pieces to take into account. But you would kind of expect that all things being equal, if everyone in tennis is taking care of themselves to the maximum degree, which it feels like we are now in that era, there are not many blokes out there with a little bit too much around the tummy, you know. Uh, I think maybe this is inevitable because, you know, when, when the likes of Becker or McEnroe or Villander were bursting onto the scene and winning slams really young, 
it's because the older guys hit 30 and, and did the 30 slump. They don't do that anymore. Well, I think what tends to happen when you get a guy, a lot of the time when you get someone coming from juniors to winning the slams is you tend to get, or, or winning young, being competitive young, is they're sort of real physical specimens. When The two great examples of that are Boris, who was a grown man. I mean, he was, I, I have to <laughs> say about Boris that, you know, to try and explain to people who, who don't remember what he was like when he came onto the scene, try and imagine someone who looks like Anthony Joshua coming along now, who's actually really good at tennis as well. That's the yeah. difference in physicality when Boris came along. But then after that, you had Safin as well, who was, when he was 18, could blow anyone away. Um, whereas we've not had one of those recently, a sort of young guy who's who's built like an outhouse and can also play. Um, the, the, the juniors tend to be, the juniors who've dominated the juniors game in recent years tend to be guys, really skillful guys who move really well. And that doesn't, lend itself to making a, an immediate impact into the men's game I, he's obviously not built like a, you know a big guy but I think in terms of the game the one who can blow them away I, we've said a few times is Sinner I mean he hits the ball so well he, he's got a big a big guy's game doesn't he straight away I, I think I, I suspect he'll be the one to buck the trend and be winning a slam by yeah. the time he's 22-23. The interesting thing is that we've gone, in, in the tennis coaching community, we've gone huge over the last sort of 10 years on athleticism, quite r- rightly to a degree. And then the great, well, who we think is possibly the best athlete ever to play the game came along in Felix Oguerre LTM. And it's just not worked yet. So he's one who might not have the raw, brutal power of Becker and that type of thing. But overall, his speed around the court combined with his power, his fluency of movement, that type of thing is is what we thought would be the ultimate. And now they talk, I mean, a mate of mine who really knows his tennis, another coach, he said to me last week, he doesn't think Felix will ever win a slam. Hmm. Well, it's quite hard to, I mean, the guy loses in finals a lot. And, you know, he got rolled over by Denis Shapovalov this time round. And, you know, what is it? Is it seven finals he's lost now? He beat Shapovalov. He beat Shapovalov. No, he beat Shapovalov. He, he got rolled he by... He lost from character. two sets. He was two sets up against character, wasn't he? Was yeah, it character? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, it was character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah who we've That's a bad loss, about, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, he's got a lot of bad defeats on his record. But, you know... it. It happens. Andy Murray had some bad defeats. Okay, then he just kept running into Djokovic in finals. But um, there's there's two ways of looking at it. there's two ways of looking at it, I think in that you know you can look at his, his his finals record is terrible. The other way of looking at it is he's been in seven finals before the age of twenty one, twenty two maybe twenty one. Mm. Yeah, he's twenty one this year. So I think there's definitely a mental there's definitely a mental gap with Felix in terms of belief. Um, yeah. Something has to change. Uh, no one remembers the runner-up as Naomi Osaka, who is quickly becoming the most quotable person in sport. You know, for someone who is quite sort of softly spoken and a little bit, you know, has that very kind of respectful way, what she actually says is dynamite. You know, she she really, you know, mutter, butter wouldn't mount her mouth and then she really comes out with some lines, actually. And it, it kind of gets almost underplayed because of the way she says it. Uh, but anyway, we should move on. Um, I mean, I don't know if there's other... Australian Open stars, people people want to point out. I do want to talk about Andy Murray uh, before the hour is up, but are there any... We've talked about Aslan Karatsev. We could talk about him some more, but I do feel like we've 
maybe exhausted that particular fountain. Um, George, you wrote down Carolina Makova, which, I mean, we kind of forgot all about her to a certain extent. She's the rogue semi-finalist of all rogue semi-finalists, frankly. Yeah, I just, I just thought the reaction to her quarter-final win over Ash Barty was quite an interesting talking point. I mean, I actually like Makova. I think she's a good player. Um, I think she took out Pliskova earlier in the tournament as well. She's beaten Pliskova and or pushed her at other slams before as well. Um, I think she's got a lot about her as a player, but she she got quite a lot of um, abuse after that win over Ash Barty based on, you know, she was doing terribly, getting absolutely rolled, takes a, a 10-minute medical timeout off court for dizziness and then comes back and rolls her in the other direction. I mean, that, that, that didn't go down particularly well with a lot of people watching. Um, I mean, it's become a pretty become a pretty standard tactic hasn't it i mean the the comfort break you know just after you've lost a set that happens to take you know a good couple of minutes it, to try and shift momentum is it's almost like an accepted tactic and the medical timeout i mean federer has had the odd off-court medical timeout that's been rather well timed i think there was an australian 2017 australian open final maybe it took one at a pretty pretty good moment um but you know or 2018 i can't remember now but you know, it's it's the th- it's the done thing, isn't it, Calvin? You're in trouble. Well, I need to see the doctor. Uh, yeah, it, it, even to the extent where I'd be sort of infuriated as a coach if a player didn't do it, um, just to try <laughs> break some rhythm. Uh, it, it used to infuriate me with a certain player I used to coach that he'd never take toilet breaks at the end of sets and that kind of thing when he'd lost them and would then come out still fuming in the next game of the, fir- the first game of the next set. And you think, just take a break to sort of calm your jets a bit. Um, hmm. And there's so many ways to get around it. The, the, the classic one is always the back injury because... No one, can, no physio can ever say you haven't got a back injury. There's no way of proving it. They can find out if you haven't rolled your ankle or that kind of thing. But yeah, my back. So, so there's a tip for anyone. If if you ever see a player with a back injury, be immediately suspicious. Uh, in the middle. <laughs> Federer's had a few, hasn't he? Recently, is that what you're yeah. saying, Calvin? Yeah. To be fair, Federer is old and he has young kids. Yeah. I'm willing to believe that he's got a back injury. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's one of those things where it's just it's a kind of necessary evil that. There's absolutely nothing you can do about it. You know, the only way you could legislate for it would be to give compulsory timeouts at the end of sets where, you know, it's three minutes off court for everyone. But that would be awful for the game. It would slow things down more than they already are. So it kind of feels like an unsolvable. But frankly, changes in if you're someone who is trying to promote tennis, why would you remove something that creates more excitement in matches? Because that's what it does. When a player yeah. is getting absolutely rolled, it usually turns the momentum around. And that's what you want as someone who's trying to sell tennis. I say more fake medical timeouts. I'm in favour of faking <laughs> medical timeouts. More, more back injuries. <laughs> more back injuries, absolutely. Um, uh, speaking of injuries and uh, medical time, I don't think Murray's necessarily been one for a medical timeout, although I'm sure he does take a lot of medical timeouts because, you know, uh, Calvin, you're making a face. I mean... <laughs> He just takes. I don't. Andy Murray's always. He always needs a medical timeout. <laughs> yeah, they're, no? they're okay, always right, legit. They're me. always legit. <laughs> right, very good. He's our national hero. He's a knight of the realm. We have to believe in him. Um, he has jetted off to the south of France. Although I don't think it'll be particularly uh, pleasant or jetty or holiday. Um, he's playing the Open Sud de France or Montpellier, as George insists everyone has to call it. 
he is up against Igor Gerasimov in the first round tomorrow, the Belarusian, who got absolutely pants down by Aslan Karatsev in Australia. And I'm kind of expecting Murray to do something similar, but we'll come on to that. Uh, he's got Yannick Sinner potentially in the second round, but he was speaking today uh, ahead of the uh, Open Sud de France. And there was some interesting stuff that, George, you, you cited um, in your running order, which I, th- I think is worth discussing. These are some of the quotes from his press conference today, which, because it was our respective days off, neither George nor I were in. Um, I play in practice with lots of top players. I know how I get on against them. If I was getting smoked when I was practicing and playing with guys, I wouldn't keep going through it. But I know the level I'm playing at. I have not competed with the top 10 players in the world, and I've been playing and practicing with players between 20 and 70 in the world and absolutely doing fine. Provided I can stay fit for a period of time and get good practice and matches in, I don't see why I shouldn't be able to compete with the best players. Um, Calvin, you've said before, I mean, we've, we've discussed before that if Murray is still fanning around with guys outside the top 100 and, you know, struggling through matches with them in 12 months' time, he, he just won't be doing it. This would suggest that he thinks it's just a matter of time until he starts beating players in a top 50 again. Yeah, he's very, um, he analyzes his game very well. He'll know for sure what his level is and whether his level is required. Um, and, but I guess a little bit of a flip side of that, he's also an obsessive competitor and he, he might talk himself into thinking, he can compete, but then again, that could also be a bonus because it's that drive that, that does it. So, um, yeah, he, he will know. He, 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 that, that's how he will judge it, I would think, ball striking, whether he can chase the balls out of the corner. I guess he's ticked the first box with that challenger last week, although I don't know whether... Did he beat anyone in that challenger who would be as good as Gerasimov? I don't think so. I mean, no, because yeah. if anyone was as good as him, they would have been in Australia. You know, yeah. almost, almost well, by true, definition. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, the, the thing, the thing for me is he he can tell us and he can tell himself that he is at this level twenty to seventy as much as he wants. But if you're not beating them in matches on court, it, it means bugger all. And th- that's the kind of thing for me is that the empirical evidence in front of him is that he's not necessarily at that level. He may think that he's at that level for 10 or 15 minutes, but you've got to, you've got to win matches against these guys, otherwise I'm just not going to believe you. He, he was at that level, though, I would say. Um, that, when he, that period where he won that tournament, you know, Antwerp. 2019, yeah. You know, he was at that level. He was winning matches. You know, he beat Berrettini there. He took Fognini very deep in three. He, he also beat Zverev. Beat, beat, he beats Zverev this year as well. Beat I mean, Nishioka. Beat Nishioka. Yeah, so, you know, the, I, th- I think there is evidence he can win the thing. Uh, the thing I've said this whole time is it's just a case of him stringing back-to-back matches, and that's why that challenger hopefully is a good base for him to now take that into a main draw draw. But the problem he is going to have the whole time is the fact that his ranking is such that he, he's likely to play someone really big in the first two rounds. I mean, does he beat Sinner at the minute? I don't know. Not if if Sinner's playing how he was in that tournament before the Australian Open, or even how he played in that first round against Shapovalov. It's going to be a very, very tough one for him. Yeah, I, I think the sort of way to look at it is that what what was good. I watched most of his matches in that challenger last week, and he didn't look in pain. So I think sort of injury wise, he's he's pain free from what I can see. We obviously don't know, but he also he, he is one player who lets you know if he's not pain free, um, Murray. <laughs> Um, so there's that. It's then whether 
his movement has been restricted to the degree to, to too much of a degree in getting pain free, if that makes sense. Um, that, yeah. That's where we're at and whether he can play those matches match after match. I'd love to see, I'm sure to you guys would be the same. I'd love to see even a 90% Murray take on Sinner right now. I think that's a great matchup to watch. Yeah, it'll be a, it'll be a heck of a watch. Uh, you're sorry, I interrupted because either... No, sorry, John, right? sorry, John, I was just saying it would it will give us a great idea, if that is the case, it will give us a great idea of where both Murray and Sinner are presently. Just, just, to, just to, before you do, George, just on those challenges last week, he didn't beat a player inside the top 150, and only one of the guys he beat was in the top 200. So that, that you know, just, just for kind of context, you know, he lost a final to Ilya Marchenko, who's 212 in the world. So this is going to be a significant step up this week. Sorry, George. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, I'm not going to sit here and pretend the challenger results the greatest thing in the world. He, he probably did the base level we would have expected from him if we thought there was going to be anything serious about it. But I think if you look at what we're thinking for Murray this season, do you think it's fair to say we hope he gets a few matches in these hardcore tournaments, gets himself ready for the French, maybe... Second week of the French would be an amazing result. If we Second go week into of the that. French, I mean, that would be fourth like, round out of this right. world. Fourth round of the French would be absolutely huge. You know, on on his least favorite surface, two months after, you know, struggling his way through a challenger. I, I'm I'm sorry, but like uh, second week of the French is like that's that's moonshot <laughs> kind of stuff. Like, okay, well, like, honestly, I, I, I'm sticking with it. I'm saying. Third or fourth round in the French, and then quarterfinals of Wimbledon. That's Andy Murray's season. That's what I'm going for. Yeah, With I enough mean, time on the tour, fit. That's what he can do. I think it's such a big ask, George. Like, just just to to kind of summon this. You know, I, I guess quarterfinals of Wimbledon is what he achieved before it all. Well, that's that if we trace it all back, he lost to Sam Query in that quarterfinal the day Novak that retired against Burdich. And that's that's kind of what you trace it all back to in terms of the last time he played at that level. So I, I suppose it's not impossible, but he's also you also have to remember, as you mentioned earlier, he's going to get a shocker of a draw, uh, almost almost guaranteed to get a really tough draw. You know, at, at either at the French and Wimbledon, which which kind of makes it even harder for him. I, I think at Wimbledon. I'd still back him against most people on grass, honestly. Like the men's game on grass is poor at the minute. Like I'm, I'm not joking. Like if he, if he has a block of matches behind him, the only two people I would categorically say he has no chance against are Djokovic and Federer. Like every mm. other player, I would give Murray a sniff. Really would. Yeah, it's interesting actually with the sort of seedings and where his rankings and that type of thing. I was talking to a coach this week who coaches uh, who until recently coached a player in the top 30 in the world. Um, and he was saying their goal was always to to get up to to be seeded at slams. And, the, and that player was, was desperate to get to the latter stages of the slams. But the actually getting seeding at the slams or at the tournaments actually caused more of a problem. Because once you get into sort of being seeded 30, for example, it means you're playing one of the top seeds in the third round. Whereas if he didn't get seeded, is more likely to it is equally likely to play somebody ranked sort of sixteen in the third round or something like that, but it made it impossible. So it could work. Having not had that ranking could also work in Murray's favour. If say he gets his ranking up to be sort of one of the lowest seeds all the time, he's always going to play 
one of those tougher guys third round. Yeah, I mean, like that point you made there is just bang on. If he, if he picks up like a Schwartzman first round of Wimbledon, he's going to win that. And then yeah. he's in that slot for number eight. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's not as simple as just saying his ranking's out of the way. Obviously, the flip side is he can play Federer round one or play Djokovic round one. Yeah. And it can be a disaster. But honestly, on a grass court, I haven't seen enough evidence from many people that they would be able to beat him Like at I, the minute. I can't see him getting seeded now because I don't think that he was, he's going to play enough tournaments to get himself into that seeding spot. Is he signed up for two this month, I think? Is he he's off to Dubai or something after? Is he right? right? Okay. Uh, so I think, I don't know. I mean, look, maybe I'm being captain optimism here, which is unlike me, but if he... He, he will need a few results to go for him to build this up. But if he, if he is genuinely saying what he is and being serious, and I do think he is, like I, I do think he knows his own level. If that's the case, I, I, I think he can surprise us. I'm not saying he's going to turn up and win yeah. these things, but I don't think it's beyond Andy Murray to be reaching the second week of both no. slams if he gets three months of tennis in between. I think that's the sort of what makes this whole thing so interesting. We don't know. We just have no idea what to expect and what he sees as success. It would be just sort of knowing that Murray, the little bit that I know him, he's an obsessive winner. So there's part of me that thinks he, he genuinely will think he can win Wimbledon this year and <laughs> might do. There's another part of me that thinks he just loves competing so much that it wouldn't surprise me one bit if he ends up just going around challenges just to play and, and play tennis matches. Because he just loves winning, that kind of thing. So <laughs> it, it, it's hard to tell. Where's where's the difference with what we were talking about, Serena earlier? I think once Serena knows that she's not going to win a slam, she's done. She won't play tennis again. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Leighton Hewitt syndrome, I think we might start to call it. Yeah. Um, George, I'm going to throw throw the floor open to any other business because you've usually got some. You have so much business. I think we've ticked off everything I had this week. Amazing. Wow. Wow, that is that is huge news. It's only taken us 67 minutes. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Um, if you're live on Locker Room with us, Kenneth, Aaron, Gonzalo, Courtney, Sophia, Samuel, Dwayne, Tyler, thanks very much for joining us. Um, if you're not uh, and listening back on the podcast, remember you can listen live on a Monday night, 9pm. Just download the Locker Room app. Uh, you can also leave us a review on wherever you get your podcasts. Only nice ones, please. Otherwise, just email George your abuse. Um, and we'll be back <laughs> next week. Thanks very much, everyone. Cheers, guys. Bye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.